you have your Bibles, please turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 33 is where we're going to be this morning. This is a two-part sermon. Uh, last week was part one, so if you haven't had a chance to listen to that, uh, I do invite you to do that because it's foundational to what we're going to talk about today. Uh, when I think of... Uh, Weddings and marriages, I think about dancing, and one thing I know about dancing is I am the worst dancer in the history of the world. Um, some of you have, have had my dancing inflicted upon you at weddings that we've had over the years, uh, and uh, the dance floor opens up, and you end up on the dance floor, and I, I know one thing about the way that I dance. I, you know, I start off, and I, 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 I like make a fool out of myself individually. I think we have a photograph of me making a fool out of myself at... <laughs> I think that was actually Sarah Garner's wedding, Sarah, so I apologize. Um, but maybe many other weddings, the same thing. Um, I get out on the floor and, you know, you start dancing and you kind of parade around and you lose uh, sight of yourself a bit. Uh, but eventually, by the time the evening ends, uh, if you're there with your spouse, you end up in a more mutual understanding instead of the dance being about yourself, the dance becomes about both of you, and I think that picture was taken that same night, and not to uh, focus on us, but really when we talk about marriage and the idea of mutual submission in marriage, it's like the process of going from dancing to please yourself in the way you want to dance to dancing together and recognizing that the movements of the dance are movements that are taken together and that the more they're taken together, the more beautiful the dance is. And that's what I want to talk about uh, this morning in this passage from Ephesians chapter 5. We said last week that the foundation of a healthy Christian household is mutual submission. And we're going to see that unfold over the next three weeks as we talk today about marriage, next week about parenting, and then the next week after that about vocation and work and relationships in the vocational sphere. We're going to see that the radical nature of early Christianity was that it dignified not only the people who had power, or were thought to be the authority or the leaders in all of those situations, but it also dignified the people that were in relationship with them. Christianity gave dignity to women, to wives, to children, and to those who worked under a household authority. In that sense, it's been called often the first, the early Christian church was called the, the first sexual revolution because it changed the order of how we looked at these things in the world. Uh, today, uh, before I get going, I know many of you here are single, um, and you're not married yet, and um, the experiences we're going to be talking about haven't come to be a part of your life yet. I want to say two things about that. Number one, I want to say that your calling to singleness at this stage in your life is a God-given calling and that it has dignity, and you have worth and value, and uh, 
there are unique gifts and opportunities that accompany singleness, whether it's a never-been-married singleness or you found yourself in a single condition after marriage. There is joy and blessing to that and much of it to be found in Scripture. It is itself a worthy calling. I also want to say to you that it may be God's will at some point in your life for you to be married. And so what we're going to talk about today, I want you to hear it in the sense of gaining a better and deeper understanding of what the Lord is calling you to, if indeed he gives you that specific calling to marriage. Uh, marriage is good, and it is God's gift to the world. We're going to see that this morning as we talk then about mutual submission in marriage. And so would you listen as I read, beginning in Ephesians chapter 5, in verse 21, the last phrase we took a look at last week. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that, she might, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ in the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Sends the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, grant us the help of your Holy Spirit as we enter into this reflection on your enduring and perfect word. We recognize, Father, that some passages in your word seem to us to be out of line with what our world would say. And so we pray for faith that we would truly see and understand the good and the right of what you call us to here. And so help us with that, we pray today, in Jesus' name, amen. I want to look today at the motivation for mutual submission in marriage, the uh, reasons for mutual submission in marriage, and finally, the structure for mutual submission in marriage. And the first point is a recap of last week. The motivation for mutual submission in marriage is reverence for Christ. 
It says it flatly in verse 21. Our calling in life, no matter what relationship we are in, no matter who we are relating ourselves to, is to activate in that relationship a sense of reverence for Christ. And the word that's used in verse 21, submit, you heard last week, is the Greek term hupotasso. And it basically means to arrange yourself under. Arrange oneself under someone or something. And every Christian person, Paul is saying in verse 21, in the way that we relate to each other, should enter into those relational contexts with a hope and desire and eye for arranging ourselves under the other person. It is, in essence, a call to relational humility, extraordinary relational humility. And the question that he would want us to be asking, no matter who we are engaging with, is a question something like this, how can I demonstrate humility and not dominance toward this other image bearer? How do I show myself to be humble in my relationship with this other image bearer? Now, um, an analogy I want to use as we work our way through this this morning, we talk about this idea of hupotasso, arranging ourselves one under, is uh, a, a relationship that probably some of us have had in our life with a police officer who um, uh, you're driving down the road, you're driving down the street, and all of a sudden you look in your rearview mirror and the red lights are flashing. And uh, you know that that's the signal to, to pull over. Uh, and when you pull over, uh, you understand that that police officer is going to be engaging with you in that moment about some potential violation of law. And they come to the window of your vehicle and, uh, you know, they ask you the, the, the question that we all know the answer to but don't want to admit, do you know how fast you were going? Okay, um, and then they'll say, do you understand that the speed limit in this zone was such and such? Uh, so here's the thing. When you are looking out the window at that police officer, that police officer is not a better person than you. They are not smarter than you. They have not followed the law completely better than you. What they are is a person in society that has the duty and responsibility of fulfilling an aspect of the law in order to keep and maintain that order in society. And so, as a citizen in a society, we respond to that police officer. We don't question, well, did you ever speed? Or, well, how do I know I can trust you? We don't do that because they are representing not themselves, but something greater than themselves. And some of the problems we see in society today are when people do not act in that manner. Now I know, and I'm going to get into this in a few minutes, not all police officers carry themselves with integrity. Police officers sin, sometimes in the function of their role. We're going to talk about how that applies to this issue in marriage. But the motivation for mutual submission in marriage for both a wife and a husband is reverence for Christ. And so we look at that other person and we relate to that other person not only 
in a personal and individual way, but with a recognition that that relationship is occurring in the context of Christ and His will for our life. And that's something, in a sense, that sets Christian marriage apart from uh, a secular understanding of marriage. Is for us. It occurs in the context of our relationship with Christ. And so the first thing to see is that mutual, the, the motivation for mutual submission is reverence for Christ. The reasons for mutual submission are kind of woven throughout the course of this text. And the, the three that I want to look at briefly are sin, order, and the gospel. First one is sin, and it occurs outside this text, but it's implied in this text and many other writings that Paul uh, gives us. Um, we're called to submission, mutual submission in marriage, because of sin. And you go way back to the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, in verses 16 to 19, after the fall has occurred, after the rebellion in the garden has occurred, God pronounces a curse upon Eve and upon Adam. And in a sense, what he's talking about here when we get to Ephesians is in some sense a response to the kind of things that the curse has done to us. And so what does he say? He says this uh, to Eve, to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. And this is the key line here. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now what does that exactly mean? There's been a lot of debate and discussion, and I don't have time this morning to, to dig into that in grave detail. But I think what he's essentially saying is, uh, wives, you will want to take leadership. You will want to assume your husband's role to lead in the family. And maybe rightly so, because we know in the garden, Adam didn't do his job. And so a wife often will want to rush into that place and assume leadership in that family. She'll want to rule and lead. Now, he doesn't say that she's going to have a problem with loving because here's the deal. Most women, and I don't want to overgeneralize, they don't have a problem with loving. They have a high capacity to love, an extraordinary capacity to love and maintain love. What does he say to Adam? Here's what he says to Adam, verse 17. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. And by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. You may look at that and say, well, what does that have to do with marriage and relationships and husbands and wives? Well, here's what it has to do with it. What he's saying to Adam is your life is going to be full of toil. And it will often be unproductive toil. And you'll have to do things over and over again and you will pour more and more time and effort and energy to the enterprise of toil to maintain your household. And in that process, I think what's implied is that you will begin to be tempting, tempted to treat your wife like a toil partner. Someone with whom you have a relationship that's helping you resolve the pressure of the toil 
And indeed, in marriage there is a sense of that. But if that's all marriage is, that this person that he's given you as a wife is your toiling partner, eventually there's going to be a problem. Because you're not loving her. You're struggling with her and your temptation is going to be to be absent from her relationally. And so sin created the context for the struggles that we see in all of marriage throughout human history. Men have a high capacity, generally speaking, for compartmentalization and work and toiling and staying focused on the task. But sometimes, in their efforts to do that, they lose sight of the person. Not all men, but many men. And so sin in the world is one of the reasons that in the New Testament we are called to submission, mutual submission in marriage. The second reason in the text in Ephesians is to maintain order. Uh, order is the reflection of God's creational design and Paul alludes to it in verse 23 when he says the husband is the head of the wife even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now he goes into this issue in a lot of places, 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Timothy 2, and in other uh, epistles that he wrote about this idea of the creation order and the calling to have headship. We know that Adam was our head, our human head, and he failed. And so Christ came to be our head, and he succeeded in all the ways that Adam could not. In a subsidiary way, he says that the rest of creative order needs to have leadership and headship in some way or another or else it collapses. Now, I recognize that this is controversial to say in the modern age that the husband is the head of the wife. But let me just underline for you what I think it means. Okay, headship means taking responsibility. It means owning all of the things that go on in such a way that you are willing to step in and bear the burden. It is doing this in the context of exercising appropriate degrees of authority. I'll use an analogy here of a small business entrepreneur who opens a small business in a, in a shop, in a, in a strip mall or whatever. He's selling something, baseball cards, whatever it is. And uh, he's the only employee, or maybe he has one or two other people that come into the shop. But here's the deal. He has to take responsibility. For what? Operating the business, running the cash register, meeting the customers, placing orders, and ultimately, in the end, cleaning the toilet and mopping the floors and locking the doors and paying the bills. Now, he may not himself or herself do all those things, but as a small business entrepreneur and owner, he is saying, I am responsible to see that these things are done well. I bear 
responsibility. So when it says the husband is the head of the wife, I think what it's suggesting to us is that it is the husband's job to take responsibility and to carry responsibility in a home. Why didn't it get ordered the other way around? Well, it could have been, I suppose. But if it was, we'd be having the same conversation today in the opposite direction about controversy, wouldn't we? Because there isn't any one of us that really um, likes to bend to that, although I, I would say I don't really want the responsibility of being president. I'm glad somebody else has that responsibility. So we have to kind of take a look and see what this idea of headship actually involves. Uh, this calling to have responsibility and maintain order is given to us because sin has disordered the world. It's broken down order. And I know one thing, as I talk to all of you about life and all the things that we see going on around us, there probably isn't anyone here that feels really happy about the disorder we have in our society. None of us do. That disorder is disturbing. When we see chaos and disorder, we see places like what we saw in Portland, Oregon, where the police couldn't even enforce the laws anymore. It is chaos. And nobody really wants that. Well, the alternative is order. And in marriage, the Lord says, the order is that the husband should be the responsible party in the marriage. It doesn't mean he does everything. That doesn't mean he's smarter than his wife. That doesn't mean that she bows to him. It means he takes responsibility. The third thing that he talks about in this passage, besides sin and order, is the gospel. And this is where the wonderful mystery of the passage comes out because it says in verses 31 and 32, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. It's the exact opposite of what you would have expected to hear in that moment. He's saying, Look at what goes on in a relationship between a husband and wife when they come together to be married and they're united in marriage. It is a beautiful and amazing mystery, this thing, human marriage. And it is. But he says, the mystery, the deep mystery, is that everything that you see in a marriage between a man and a woman is an illustration of something far more profound, and it is the relationship between Christ and His church. And so marriage is to exemplify the gospel. It is to be a living illustration of the gospel. A wedding is that moment, that moment of pomp and circumstance where, where, where I stand up here and we see at the back door, we all stand and the bride appears, the doors open, she's dressed in white. And you know where I'm always looking at that moment? I'm not looking at her, I'm looking at the groom who doesn't know I'm looking at him, but he's usually starting to cry and weep because of how much he loves her and how beautiful she is. And all of the hopes and dreams and wonder 
that he has for that relationship is meeting his heart and mind and soul in that moment. And it's doing the same with her as she stares down the aisle and sees the one that she will be bonded to for life. It is an incredible, powerful picture. And what he's talking about here is that that illustration that we experience when we're married or when we watch a marriage happen is to be an illustration that should never escape our heart and mind of the love between Christ and His church. What does Christ do? He stands like a bridegroom and He seeks His spouse. He sets His love on His spouse. He receives His spouse. He binds Himself to her by vows and He pours Himself out to her when they stand in front and they take vows to have and to hold in sickness and in health till death do you part. It is a mystery. It is a beautiful mystery. And one of the reasons God hates divorce isn't so much about the turmoil that takes place. He hates that for sure. But what he hates about divorce is in society, when divorces become rampant, it destroys the greatest illustration that he's given his people about his love. And when we redefine marriage, or we jettison marriage, or we say, I never, I never would consider being married, and some have that call, not most. In a sense, it's like God has pain because he gave us a gift and we're misusing it. So when a marriage breaks down, it is grievous to God for those reasons, as well as all the sin that can occur between the parties. But Paul is saying the reason that we have mutual submission in marriage like this is to address the issue of sin, to maintain order, and to illustrate the gospel. Christian people. So your motivation is reverence for Christ. He's doing these three things, and that brings us to the structure of mutual submission in marriage. And if I could place a, a term on it, it would be simply this, Christocentricism. Christ-centricism. We are to arrange ourselves under one another in a way that is tied to our relationship with Christ. What's the first part of this? It is the part in verse 22 where we read the following. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And then in verse 24, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And then verse 33, let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, I want to be very clear about what it doesn't say here. It doesn't say, women submit to men. It does not say that. It says, wives submit to your own husbands. And the term submit, as I tried to explain last week, hupotasso means arrange yourself under. There is no word for submit in verse 22. Okay? 
The word submit, hupotasso, occurs in verse 21, which it says, as you, as you remember a moment ago when we read it, it says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. In the literal Greek, verse 22, it says, wives to your husbands as to the Lord. The term does occur in verse 24, where it's in the middle voice in the Greek. Now, you'll have to talk to Aaron uh, about this to get all the details, but I, I think it's important when you look at the, the terminology here and the way the Greek language works. There is, there's three voices in Greek. There's the active voice, there's the passive voice, and there's the middle voice. An active voice is kind of the indicative voice. Go, do something. It's, it's us having an action impacted upon us. The passive voice is when some, some action impacts us. The middle voice in the Greek is an action that you are taking responsibility for yourself because it relates to you. And so the voice of the word submit or arrange yourself one, uh, under to the, to the wife here is the middle voice. Okay, And so what's being suggested here, according to Peter O'Brien, who's an excellent commentator on the Greek language, is that this is an appeal to free and responsible persons which can only be heeded voluntarily, never by elimination or breaking the human will, much less by means of servile submissiveness. A husband cannot pound his wife down by saying, submit to me, submit to me, submit to me. It's not what the Greek says. The Greek is an appeal to the wife out of reverence for Christ to arrange herself under her husband in this way. Why? Well, because if you do, the chances of your marriage being more joyful will be greater. You cannot do that if you'd like, but there will be consequences for not doing that, just in terms of how the relationship functions, fighting, distrust, disregard, uh, a breakdown in the relational matter. Just like when a police officer pulls you over, you can refuse to roll your window down, you can refuse to speak to them, you cannot pull over, go ahead. But there will be consequences for that. There will be problems that follow that. And so a wife is being appealed to, to arrange herself under her husband. And the word in verse 33, just to be clear, this word where it says, respect your husband, verse 33, it's the same word we read in verse 21, where we should have mutual submission out of reverence for Christ. There we translate it reverence. It's the same word, phobeo, as it is in verse 33, where it's translated respect. The idea is, and this is the main thing, the submitting, the arranging yourself under is to look like respect. Okay? It's to look like respect. That is the main thing that he's trying to appeal to wives to do. Respect your husbands. So when you regularly, as a wife, demonstrate this respect of your husbands, you create an environment in which the desire for him to love you will grow. I don't say love will grow exactly because some men's sin patterns 
will always make it difficult for that to happen. But if you don't, the conditions for a growing love will be hindered. Now, the manner in which this submission occurs is as to the Lord, it says. What does that mean? Does it mean in the same way you submit to the Lord? Or does it mean because you submit to the Lord? Some have argued the first, like a wife should arrange herself under her husband in exactly the same way that a Christian arranges themselves under Jesus. But I don't think that's the right answer. Because Paul, of all people, understands men, husbands, are nothing like Jesus. We can't live up to that. So I think what he's saying instead is, wives, arrange yourself under your husbands and be respectful to them because of Jesus. Because of Jesus. Do it as an act of faith in your relationship with the Lord. Now this is where the questions come up. Okay, let's just take them head on. What if the husband is cruel and abusive to his wife? And let me tell you, there are a lot of cruel and abusive husbands. Must a wife submit to a cruel and abusive husband? Well, the answer is the same as the police officer analogy. No. We submit to police officers that enforce the law as it is written according to the way the law is written, not to abuses of that. You have the right to not submit to a police officer that treats you illegally. What about the relational area, this kind of gray area of relational unkindness? Um, where a husband isn't very nice to his wife. Does she need to arrange herself underneath him respectfully in that case? Well, here's where I would say, you know, we have to distinguish between sin as error and sin as intentional rebellion. There's two kinds of sin. We make mistakes that are sins that we didn't go into the moment wanting to make or planning to make but we make them and they're still sins. And then there are sins that we engage ourselves in because we have planned it. And I would say that it's critical in this sense that a wife and her counselors are able to distinguish between a husband who acted unkindly and a husband who is oppressing her by nature. Because the deal is, husbands act unkindly and wives act unkindly. We're sinners. Can you tell the difference between a person who does something unkind, which is sinful, and someone who has ordered your life unkindly and impressively? We know of a couple, friends of ours, not in this church, where the husband has forbidden his wife from having any contact with her family for more than 15 minutes a week. And he says to her, submit to me. You know, that's abuse. That's abuse. And it's wrong. And when he says, you have to do this, submit to me, he's not following the sense of the text. Now, he might say, I think your family is really bad for us. I think it's hurting our relationship. I think there's all these issues. Can we work together to try to figure out a way to avoid that? That's different. Or he might get mad and yell at her one day. But that's that's an unkind act versus someone who has arranged the situation to be oppressive. 
And there are many examples of that. If you don't understand the difference, you need to talk to a counselor or a pastor to work through that because it can be very disturbing. A wife should arrange herself under her husband by respecting him because of the Lord. A husband should arrange himself under his wife by loving her as the Lord loves. And the, the wording to a husband is a lot more words. I think it's because we're not as smart as our wives usually. More words. Okay? Responsibility. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Let me tell you what we don't find in this section. It does not say, men, exercise your authority. It says that nowhere. It says, husbands, love your wives. Agapeo. Unconditional love, like Christ. The leading, the being the head, is grounded in the loving. It's grounded in the loving. Uh, we have a lot of hyper-masculine Christians right now. It's one of the biggest movements that's out there in Christianity. And you know what it is? Let's, let's be honest about it. It's a reaction to 30, 40, 50 years of demeaning men and boys. That's what it is. Doesn't excuse it, though. Because the form of masculinity being preached in these movements is hyper-masculinity. One of these websites, one of the most popular, tells husbands they should never, ever wash the dishes or do the laundry. Because they are, they are sinning against God and their family if they ever do that. That is the role of a woman. That is a reformed Christian website. And it is a broken and distorted version of biblical masculinity. Biblical masculinity is loving as Christ loved. Now this can only be done through an intentional commitment to show unceasing sacrificial word for your, for your wife. It is the model of Christ's love for the church. What did Christ do? He handed himself over for the sake of his church. And in doing so, he impressed upon his church by his example that it should pursue holiness and grace and mercy amongst one another and that they would be sanctified because they saw that he handed himself over. The idea is that we look at Jesus and we say, look what he did for me. How can I not honor him? In setting, in handing himself over, he set his wife apart, the church. That's what it means he sanctified her. He made her ready for heaven. 
That is, he presents her to his father without spot or wrinkle because he has taken responsibility. And so the big idea, men, husbands, is when you love your wife like this, it creates an environment in which her respect for you will normally grow. Again, I didn't say it will grow because we're sinners. And sometimes the rebellion is such that they never respond, just like it is with a husband. He goes on in verse 28, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, for he who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. It's the it's the modified golden rule of marriage. You know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. What Paul does here is he takes it and he adds a little flavor to it and he says, do unto your wife as you would do unto yourself. A good head, a person who bears responsibility, will never neglect the needs of his own body or else the organism will fail. That small business owner that refuses to clean the toilet or lock the doors at night or run the errands to supply the store, his business will fail because he's not taking responsibility. A marriage will fail if you do not engage yourself in wrestling with what it means to love your wife as Christ loved her. The heart of Christian husbanding, the, car, the heart of a husband's headship is sacrificial, not service demanding. Robertson McQuilkin was the president of Columbia International College and Seminary for 28 years. He and his wife were instrumental. They both taught at the seminary. And at the age of 58, the height of the seminary and college's growth, his wife, Muriel, was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. Everyone around him said, look, put her in a home and keep doing your work at the college. It's so important. Pat Robertson went on TV and said it's okay for husbands or wives to divorce their spouse if they get Alzheimer's. Robertson McQuilkin, at the age of 62, went to the board of his college and seminary and he said, I am resigning to care for my wife. He said this in an article that he wrote in Christianity Today, when the time came, the decision was firm. It took no great calculation. It was a matter of integrity. Had I not promised 42 years before in sickness and in health, till death do us part. This was no grim duty to which I stoically resigned. It was only fair. She had, after all, cared for me for almost four decades with marvelous devotion. And now it was my turn. 
and such a partner she was. If I took care of her for 40 years, I would never be out of her debt. That little phrase, marvelous devotion, described the way that they both treated one another. Marvelous devotion, mutual submission that looks like respect and love for the glory of the name of Christ and the good of one another. I know that there are 25,000 questions about how this works itself out in your marriages. I understand that. I don't have time to answer 25,000 questions today. But I think you can answer them better if you understand that the motivation for mutual submission is reverence for Christ. The reasons for it are sin, order, and the gospel. And the structure of it is respect and love. Run your questions through that grid. And if you need help, me, my wife, your elders, their wives, your friends, all of whom have imperfect marriages, will be delighted to spend time with you to help you understand what it means so that you can thrive and have joy even through hard moments for the glory of Jesus and the display of the gospel as it's seen in the illustration of marriage. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would be with us today as we reflect individually as couples, as singles, as children on what you have given us in the beautiful institution of marriage. We lament, we confess, we grieve what has become of marriage, not just because of what others have done to it, but what we sometimes do to it. The way that we take advantage of each other in reverencing or respecting or refusing to love, Lord. Help us to examine our own hearts. Help us to wrestle with your Holy Spirit. Help us to grow in grace. Help us labor in the name and power of your Son, Jesus Christ, to demonstrate humility and grace in our relationships so that you would get the glory, so that marriage would thrive in our churches, that people would see that it's held together by you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.